Now, as a reminder, and for anyone who may not know this, we're in a portion of scripture that's known as the Upper Room Discourse. This is the Lord Jesus Christ on the night before his death, his last night with his 11 disciples. And there's only 11 because Judas was a fraud. He was a fake disciple and he has been ordered out of this room this night by the Lord himself. He's preparing this, these men for his arrest, for his death, and as you shall see, for his resurrection. Now, last week we looked at verses 16 to 22, and we didn't make it to 24, which was my intention. However, this morning we'll look at verses 23 to 24, but to set this in your mind, I want to read verses 16 through 24, and I pray that you will see these great connecting truths in this upper room discourse, that produce and are the cause of the Christian's joy. Abundant joy, overflowing joy. And we will see this morning how you attain such joy and how you hold on or maintain this kind of joy. Biblical, Christ-centered joy. We begin reading in verse 16. It's the words of our Lord Jesus Christ to his eleven. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's speaking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while and you will not see me and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for Anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Holy Father, but by your grace now we pray, the leading and illuminating light of your Holy Spirit grant us the understanding of this text and the ability for me to communicate to your people the glorious truth of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. The glorious truths that are being conveyed through this discourse in the upper room are no doubt for his own, his own people. We then, beloved, most assuredly as his own, must come to his word and make these great truths ours by the way that we live every single day. 
Jesus now, only hours away from what would make him appear to be the victim of Judaistic hierarchy of his day, is therefore preparing his 11 disciples for a sorrow that will be turned into joy beyond their comprehension. And this joy is a permanent joy. A joy that can never be taken from them. And this is the same joy that can never be taken from anyone who is in Christ. I.e. any true believer. Because it is independent of the changes and whims of the world. So that even death loses its sting. And this joy is to be had by every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, God's word actually commands us, his people, to pursue, get this, to pursue our joy. To pursue our joy. In Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's joy. In the New, in <clears throat> the New Testament, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord how often? Always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You can only rejoice like this if you have joy. In John 15, 11, this very night, the upper room, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain, may remain in you and that your joy may be made full. Our text this morning, verse 24, Jesus said, Ask, and you will receive, in order that your joy may be made full. Full joy, beloved. Now, if God's word commands us to pursue this kind of joy, why then are there so many joyless Christians? Why does the apparent majority of believers remain steeped in joyless despair? Or remain in, never, in this never-ending pursuit for joy? And it leaves them coming up empty every time. For to pursue joy outside of what Jesus had communicated through this upper room discourse is to come up empty. And I trust that our study will answer those questions for us this morning. Now these commands of scripture to delight yourself in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, signify a joy that is in God alone. This is the only place that true joy can be attained it is the only place that this kind of true joy can be maintained. Because outside of him, all other brands of joy are contingent upon your circumstances. And as a consequence of sin, as we studied last week, peace and joy have become subjective experiences. We're happy when good or exciting things happen. We're sad when they don't. However, God's word is clear and very instructive regarding joy and its source. Key word, its source. If you remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 70 disciples and he sent them out two by two to preach his gospel. They came back excited, full of joy. And in verse 17, Luke chapter 10, then the 70 returned with joy, saying... Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. 
But nevertheless, Jesus answered them, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Oh, the joy of knowing salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. True joy. Charles Spurgeon exhorts us as he wrote in the mid-1800s, quote, Rejoice neither in your wealth, your health, your children, your prosperity, your position, your success. For if your name be not written in heaven, Ichabod is written over all your choicest possessions, end quote. The name Ichabod means, where is the glory? It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 21. After the Philistines took the ark of God, Phineas, who was now dead at this point, had a wife, and she bore a son. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 21, she called the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken. The glory, unfortunately, beloved, has departed from many Christians, apparently, while many others are seeking this glory through religion, through possessions or experiences, and Ichabod is therefore written over all that they idolize. Because if it's not in Christ, it's idolatry. Now, this in no way should be the case with anyone who's in Christ, because if you're in Christ, you're redeemed, you've been bought back, you've been set free. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. From before the foundation of the earth, the Bible tells us. Now, true Christian joy, friends, cannot be taken away because it's not based on subjectivism. It's not based on experience. It's not based on feelings. This is very important. It's not based on feelings. I mean, sometimes our faith feels much stronger than at other times, amen? Sometimes our hearts overflow with warm feelings towards God, and other times they don't. It doesn't, rather. Other times you're full of doubt that you're even a true believer. But the fact, however, does not change. The fact of what Christ has accomplished in history, and that is your redemption. That is his work, and he said on the cross, it is finished. It's finished. So there's three questions that I raised this morning outlined for you in your bulletin. Number one, what is joy? What is joy? Number two, how is full joy attained and maintained? And we will conclude this morning with that which kills joy. That which kills joy. What kills joy? So joy, what is it? Joy is a definite or an assured kind of cheerfulness, a definite or an assured kind of cheerfulness. This is deep down, this is a calm delight. It's, it's to be calmly happy or to be well off. In joy, very important, joy is a source or a cause of delight. Joy is the source or the cause of delight. Now in both the Old Testament as well as the New Joy is a consistent mark of the individual believer along with the corporate gathering of God's people, i.e. his church. 
So joy, therefore, is a quality and not merely an emotion. Because it's both rooted in and it is derived from God himself. That's the joy we're talking about this morning. The psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 11, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In the New Testament, Romans 15, 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Joy and peace in believing. That you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And my friends, if you are in Christ, you are possessed. You are possessed by the Holy Spirit. You are owned. You were bought at a great price. He possesses you. Joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. And the quality of joy is what characterizes the Christian's life here on earth. As we sojourn, we are pilgrims passing through. And this joy ought to characterize our very lives. Now Jesus spoke this night to these 11 men, just hours away from his arrest, his trial, and his death. And he speaks to them of a joy that is to never cease, a joy that ought not to be interrupted for even a moment. And this he said as his disciples, as they were gripped by fear, by the way, were facing his impending crucifixion. So this joy that Jesus speaks of is not contingent upon outward fortune, fantasy, or pleasure. This joy, friends, is entirely relational. This is a relational joy. And this is what many Christians fail to experience. This kind of joy. Because they fail to understand God and they fail to understand His Word. See, what they've done, they've, many people draw up this imaginary Jesus who is anything but biblical. Right? The people who, you know, the green people who want to recycle everything, which is good. But they, they turn into, they're, they're earth worshipers now. Instead of worshiping the creator, they worship that which has been created. And they think that, you know, Jesus was, I don't know, a vegetarian or something, and he wouldn't use plastic. I don't know. But they draw up these pictures in their mind of this Jesus... And therefore, it is impossible to understand ourselves. We can't understand our own heart. We can't understand mankind. We cannot understand our needs or our sin, let alone the glories of his redeeming work on Calvary until we come to understand God himself. There's no way. And once we come to understand God, that he is holy, he is righteous, he is just, then and only then can we rightly understand ourselves and the rest of mankind. We must know God. I mean, after all, it's only the study of God that can make the study of any other subject, you fill in the blank, whatever that is, can we make those things more clear and concise. You want to study the arts? Study the glories of God. You want to study the sciences? Study the glories of God. You want to study history? You want to study philosophy? Study all of that in light of divine truth. First and foremost. And only then does our understanding of those subjects become much more clearer. The one who created them all. 
our understanding of Him, this glorious God, along with our relationship to Him, is what produces unending, uninterrupted joy. The unceasing joy, otherwise known as Christian joy, is dependent upon a certain connection. This is very important, a certain connection. And it's not a connection to an esoteric, esoteric or mysterious type of experience. It's not a connection to favorable circumstances. It's not a connection to amusement or something that's exhilarating. It's entirely in connection to this, friends, to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where this joy is experienced. Now, the cause for sorrow that consumed these 11 men, their minds and their hearts were gripped in fear at this point. The very thing that grips them, however, at this moment would also produce the greatest joy they could ever possibly experience. The thing that grips them will produce joy from out of them. So, That's joy in a nutshell. Second question. How is full joy to be attained and maintained? Okay, Christian, how is joy to be attained and maintained? And those answers are clearly defined for us in this very discourse, taking us all the way back to chapter 14. Now, the upper room discourse begins partway or halfway through chapter 13 and proceeds through the end of chapter 16, followed up by the high priestly prayer of Jesus for his disciples and all who will believe thereafter in John chapter 17, which we'll get to in two weeks. But before we go back, let's refresh our minds of our study last week. This will be especially helpful for you if you weren't here last week. Now, look at verse 16. Here we are in the upper room this night, Jesus with these 11 men. He said, a little while you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Now, the little while in which they will not see him is the three days that he'll be in the grave. That's the little while that he's referring to. Now, the Lord's methodology here in in raising up this question is designed to stir up discussion. I mean, look at it. A little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. These men are beside themselves at this point. They're expecting Jesus to set up this messianic kingdom on earth. Well, wait a minute. If he came to set up this kingdom and he's going to leave, why would he come? And if he's not going to set it up, why would he come back and then set it up? I don't get this. So in verse 17 and 18, some of his disciples then said to who? To one another. What is this thing he's telling us? Well, in verse 20, Jesus provides an explanation. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Why? Because the world hates him. They want him gone. Judaism wants him out. The religious hypocrites want him dead. They'll rejoice. You will grieve, Jesus said, but your grief will be turned to what, friends? Joy. Joy. The very thing that will cause their grief and sorrow is the identical thing that will cause their joy. It's very important that we get this. So it's not that joy replaces sorrow. Rather, the sorrow itself becomes their joy. 
Now, on the physical and in the emotional level, his death would cause them great sorrow, great uncertainty. But on the spiritual level, that same death would become their ever-abounding joy. For they would later realize that the cross is the very foundation of their deliverance. Freedom from sin, from guilt, from condemnation, from an eternity in hell, and it be the very gift of eternal life for them. Now Jesus illustrates this in verse 21. This is beautiful. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because the, what? Joy that a child has been born into the world. The same baby that's the cause of the pain is also the cause of the joy. The very same pain would bring about this great, overwhelming joy that this woman would experience. So when a woman suffers through the pain of childbirth, God does not substitute something else in order to stir up joy. When the baby's delivered, the baby that caused the pain now caused the joy. And it's important that we remember this, friends, as we go through trials in this life. We, we shall not expect God to replace that which we go through That's which we suffer, the turmoil that we face to replace it. What he'll do is transform the situation, transform the trial, transform the temptation, and turn it into joy. You recall Joseph, who was sold into slavery back in Genesis by his brothers. He's led down into Egypt. He wants to honor God and obey God, and as a result, he gets thrown into prison for that. Many years later, he's faced face to face with those brothers. They didn't recognize him, but oh, did he know them. And he said, that which you meant for evil, what? God meant for good. God's the one that's in sovereign control here, and we must remember this in our own lives. So he uses what's already there. It's a baby, but transforms the pain into joy. Verse 22, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your, what? Joy away from you. Ah, the joy of the resurrection, see? The joy of the resurrection. The joy of the resurrection validates the Old Testament. The resurrection validates the New Testament. The resurrection validates the fact that Jesus is the only way. The resurrection validates the fact that there is no other way. All other religious systems are dead. They lead people down the broad road to hell. And Jesus said there are many that go that way. The resurrection validates all that Christ is and all that he claimed to be. Now, by way of reminder, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ reveals two great eternal truths for us this morning. Mark this down if you didn't last week. Number one, his resurrection means that Jesus will never die again. (laughs) He's eternal God. Sovereign Lord, Jesus said, no one will take your joy from you because your joy comes from being with Jesus and he'll never be cut off from you. He'll never die again. He came to save you. He came to buy you back, laying his life down on the cross. He became the recipient of God's unmitigated wrath. He'll never be cut off from you because he'll never die again. 
Secondly, the resurrection means that true believers will never die. Physically, yes. But the moment you leave this body, you will be in the presence of your Savior. You will not pass through some cold, dark chasm known as death. This body dies, you don't. You're eternal from the moment you're born again. So, because your joy comes from being with Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus means that you'll never die, you therefore will never be cut off from him. You see, because he'll never die, he'll never be cut off from you, and because you'll never die, you'll never be cut off from him. This is what you have in Christ, and this is the difference between a true Christian and a non-Christian. They have this type of eternal joy. All others who are outside of Christ will face a double death. They will die physically, and they will be eternally separated from God only to face his wrath for all eternity. Do you have joy, brothers and sisters, over this glorious truth? What we see here is that two things have to be true if your joy is to never be taken from you. Now this is the core, this is the theology of it. One is that your source of joy lasts forever. Who's our source of joy? Jesus is. He's the source of our joy. He does last forever And the other is that you last forever. If either you or the source of your joy are mortal, merely earthly, then your joy will indeed be taken from you. Now, Jesus, he's certainly not mortal. (laughs) And neither are you spiritually if you're in Christ. And that alone, friends, ought to be the cause for inner and outer joy unless, unless, I'm talking to Christians here, unless your priorities are terribly misaligned. That's one of the reasons we gather together, amen? We're gathered here as sinners saved by grace. You are here, I hope, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ through singing and through the exposition of his word. This is... Part of worship service, by the way. What is greater than the word of God? Nothing. The Bible says that God has exalted his word above that of his own name. This is worship service. And we, another reason that we join together is to, to realign our priorities to the word of God. So let's pick up where we left off last week. Verse 23. And in that day, you will ask me no questions. Now, in that day, probably refers to his appearance after his resurrection. The verb ask, here in this phrase, in that day, you will not question me about anything, depending on your translation. The the verb ask means to ask a question rather than to request a favor. A specific question rather than a prayer request. You see, because when they see him again, the truth of his claims and the status of his person would be self-evident by way of this, resurrection power. The resurrection. There would be no question of these 11 men as to how Jesus would accomplish his messianic purposes. When they see him raised up from the dead, it's all going to click, let alone when the Holy Spirit comes, Pentecost. Now, although they had asked him many questions over this three and a half year period of his earthly ministry, once his priestly ministry is complete, where he would offer himself as the atoning sacrifice for all who will believe, 
and all who have ever believed. The covenantal promises of the Old Testament would reach their culmination in the blood of the cross, the glorious bloody cross, for without which we'd have no hope, no hope at all. And then the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies would be torn, how friends? From the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top, but the top from the bottom. God provided this. What's the result therefore? That the people of God would be directly related to the Father through the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Drawn in given access to this holy, righteous God who's completely separate, separated from his creation because he's holy and we're sinful. And this earth and this creation are cursed by him when man fell to sin in the garden. So the Father has given the Son in eternity past, friends, a certain number of people. The Father gave the Son a certain number of people and Jesus purchased those people with his blood. Jesus came and he purchased those people by laying his life down, shedding his blood, for without the, without, the forgive, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, the perfect sacrifice, and he has thereby taken them and given them back to the Father to be kept. All right? Jump over to John 17 for a moment. Look at verse 6. Now this is which we'll get to in a couple weeks, Jesus praying to the Father. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Jump down to verse nine. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So by way of Christ's finished work, Jesus speaks here back in John 16. Jesus speaks here as though it was as good as done. Look at verse 23. 23b. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in, what? My name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Now, while the Lord was on earth here and his three and a half years of ministry to these men, the disciples were accustomed to asking their questions to Jesus personally. Or they prayed to the Father, as Jesus taught them to pray. Matthew chapter 6, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He gives them a pattern for prayer. But here now, Jesus speaks about praying to the Father in his name. Why his name? I mean, what's in a name? A reputation? One's character? The whole being and nature of a person or an object is in a name. If I said, if I said the name Judas, what comes to your mind? <laughs> 
betrayer. Immediately. If I said Benedict Arnold, what would you think? A turncoat, a traitor. If I said King David, you would probably think of a man after God's own heart. If I told you three years ago that the professional quarterback who played, who played for the Atlanta Falcons, Michael Vick, an incredible athlete, were dog-sitting at my house while my family and I go away, you would immediately think, oh, wow, a professional football player, an incredible athlete at that, is watching the leader's dog. <laughs> However, if I told you yesterday, oh, hey, this weekend... Memorial Day weekend, Michael Vick will be dog-sitting for us. You would immediately think of a man who, oh, isn't he the guy that just went to prison and was kicked out of the NFL for fighting pit bulls against one another? And that's what he did, and he was arrested for that two years ago, and he just got out of prison for that this past week. So what he was then is not what he is now with regard to his name and his reputation. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be more desired than great riches. When I speak of a hungry lion and a hungry lamb, and ask you, which would you rather be locked in a cage with? And you had to pick one or the other. <laughs> I doubt, unless you had a death wish, that you would choose being locked up with a, with a starved lion. But each of those names, lion and lamb, suggests the different nature that is unique to both of them. Amen? And such is the case with the name above all names. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord. In other words, he's Jehovah. He's creator God. He is Jesus, the Savior. And he is the Christ, God's anointed. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is fully divine. He is Lord. God. He is the unique incarnate son of God. He is Jesus. Who performed the full work of saving people by his death and resurrection, anointed by the Father to do so. He therefore is the Christ. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is only God's redeemed people, friends. It is only, in other words, true believers saved by grace that have access to God on the basis of Jesus Christ and his person and work. In other words, we only stand and have access by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done. We only have access to the Father on the basis and the merit of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what it is to pray in his name. We stand righteously on his work. And it was accomplished on our behalf. That is in Jesus' name. We don't pray and just slap Jesus, in Jesus' name at the end like it's some magic formula. Prayer is not magic. The name of Jesus is not magic. Many people just pray and say, oh, and in Jesus' name like he's some genie. Granting my every desire. James Montgomery Boyce put it like this. Quote, 
This is the equivalent of saying that prayer is for Christians only. It is a family privilege. God does not promise to hear the prayer of anyone who comes to him in any way, but through faith in the person and the work of his unique and beloved son. End quote. In other words, you must be in Christ to have access to the Father. We're gathered here together in the name of Jesus Christ. Sinners redeemed, bought back at a great price, paid for, stamped on our foreheads, forgiven, pure, clean, because of his name, because of his person, because of his work. Now, what I want you to notice is this great connection that answers our this, this great connection that answers my beginning question. How is full joy to be attained and maintained. Now, to pursue joy, to attain joy, to maintain this joy, we must pray. We must pray. And in order to pray, we must be in Christ. In other words, you have to be a true believer. You have to be truly born again. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. He's not a Christian unless he or she is born again. Jesus said that in John chapter 3. Now, in order to see the connection here, we need to jump back. Same night, upper room. Now, we're going back to John 14 right now. And for us in our study, it was about three plus months ago. But keep in mind now, it was only moments ago this night. It was only moments ago that Jesus spoke these words to these men. Look at verse 13 of John 14. And whatever you ask in my name... That will I do in order that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Okay, hold your finger there and go back to John 16, 24. Until now, you has, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive in order that or so that your joy may be made full. Notice first. That in order to attain joy, we must pray. And whatever you ask in Christ's name, in other words, by the merit of Jesus Christ, he will do. That's the guarantee. What's the result? That our joy will be made full. Now, the first connection of our joy is that God is glorified. That's first and foremost. In all things, the glory of God. Your salvation, first and foremost, friends, is for the glory of God. And secondly, it's for your own good. And what this provides, you see, is deep fellowship for God's people. Now, we just looked at John 16, 20 to 22, and Jesus spoke about the sorrow of separation from him. And that that sorrow would be turned to joy. When he rises from the grave and after he ascends to heaven, that joy will remain, right? He just said, look, a little while you will not see me, and again you will see me. And they're going to have joy? Well, he's going to rise up from the dead, reveal himself, show himself to them, but then he's going away again. He's going to ascend to heaven. And then who comes? God the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So, because, because whether he's with them physically or indwelling them spiritually, what they have here is essential to obtaining and maintaining this joy. And it is this. It is a true Living fellowship with Jesus Christ. The very thing that Judas never had. He appeared to be a believer, 
The other disciples thought he was a believer. And even that night, earlier this night, when Jesus said, one of you's the devil, they still had no idea that Judas was a fraud. So, no person, what we see here is, no person can have the fullness of joy that Jesus is speaking about here without a vital living fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friends, simple knowledge about Jesus won't do it. For all you youngsters that have been going to church your whole life, knowledge of this truth alone will never provide this joy. Serving in the church will not provide this joy. We must have a personal relationship that is essential to such joy as this. Otherwise, it becomes a joyless burden. For instance, how many times, hopefully you've never done this, and are still in this place, but how many times have people found themselves to be in a great jam, facing great trouble, great misery, and they cry out to God, oh God, if you only get me out of this, I'll serve you the rest of my life, like that foxhole conversion prayer. These guys go to war and bullets are flying all over above them and around them, and they cry out, Lord, if you just get me out of this, spare my life, I'll serve you all my life. Well, he gets them out of it. They never serve God. God in his mercy and his sovereign providence spares the life of this person. And and over time, because it was merely sorrow over their situation, the faith that they are attempting to live now is only outward and it becomes a joyless endeavor. Yeah, they go to church. Yeah, they serve, but they have no joy because they're not in Christ. They only have an outward understanding of him and a superficial commitment to him. It becomes a burden, friends. It becomes mere religion. Now, that's the first connecting element to this joy, and it's a true prayer life through deep fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? Now look at John 15, verse 7. If, notice the word if, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. You know, what does this tell us? It tells us this, that when God's word, the very words of Christ, abide in us, and remember the word abide means to continue on with. If you continue on in my truth, in my word, if you continue on with me, we hear the word and we know the word, and to hear the word and know the word is to know the very will of God. In other words, we come to know the mind of Christ. And as we know the mind of Christ, we listen to the mind of Christ by way of his word, and he, we see him begin to conform our will to his. And as he conforms our will to his by way of his revealed truth through his word, we pray, naturally it just comes out of us. And we therefore pray according to that word. And as we pray according to that word, we're praying according to his will, and these type of prayers that come out of this, friends, are sweet incense before the throne of God. This great connection. Now, we're going to go back to John 14, 13. And what I want to do for you is I prayed about this this week. I'm just going to walk through my study notes. Okay, they look like this from this week. Okay, 
Those are my own little study notes. And I saw this great connection here that, is the, that produces this kind of joy. So I'm going to ask as I've prayed that your minds would stay intact here, that God would grace you to see these things and be prepared to follow so that you know this great formula, this great connecting formula to this overabounding, never-ending joy for you. Promise to you. Amen? Okay, let's look at it together. Again, John 14, 13. Same night, upper room, moments ago, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be what? Glorified. The glory of God is first and foremost in the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. Okay, here, what do we see? If we ask in his, in his name, on the basis of his merit, laying down his life for us, we can ask him anything, and the guarantee is he says he'll do it. Next, connection, that we keep his commandments. Look at John 15, verse 7. If, notice all these conditions, by the way, with the word if. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. So we ask in his name on the basis of his merit. We keep his word because we abide in Christ. We have life in the vine. He's the vine, we're the branches. And if the branch is going to bear fruit, it has to abide in the vine. It has to have life in the vine. And as we abide in Christ, we know that he abides in us. His word. Look at verse 8, John 15. By this, by what? My word abiding in you. By this my father's glorified that you bear much fruit and thereby prove to be my disciples. So you see, abiding in his word causes us to pray according to his word. And as we pray according to his word, whatever we ask according to that word, it will be granted to us. Because we're conforming to his truth. Not our own little whims and desires. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's the proof. Those who are in Christ, they pray to Christ, they have access to God the Father in the name of Christ because of his merit and that which he's accomplished on our behalf. We love his word, we go to his word, we're in his word, his word is in us, we pray according to his will and he answers our prayers and God is glorified. Because what we realize here, friends, is that we have no power to bear fruit in and of ourselves. We're fully dependent upon him. And when we bear fruit of what? The spirit, the father's glorified. Notice, Jesus continues. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my what? In my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, if you recall in our study, this kind of love, if you look back at verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I also love you. Therefore, abide in my love. There's always been perfect love between the Father and the Son. But when Jesus became a man, he obeyed the Father perfectly. And the Father loved him. This is known as the love of approbation, the love of approval. The love of praise, the love of consent. In other words, when Jesus lowered himself to come out of glory and to take on human flesh, he obeyed the Father as he was led by who? The Spirit. 
He obeyed the truth of God. That's why God the Father spoke from heaven on a number of occasions. He said, this is my beloved son in whom what? I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus said, just as the Father has loved me for perfectly abiding in his word, I have also loved you. Therefore, abide in that love. In other words, as we come to to the Father in Christ's name, we're in his word, his word is in us, we obey his word, we abide in his word, we experience fruit through us that brings glory to God, and when we experience fruit through us where God is glorified, we experience that approving love of God. We experience his pleasure in our obedience. And notice what he says. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Whose joy? His joy. And that your joy may be made what, friends? Full. So there's this great connection because Christ paid for us. We have access to the Father. He's given us his word. We understand his word by his grace. We abide in that truth. We abide in his love of approbation. We see the fruit in our lives. It's fruit of the spirit by God's grace. God's glorified. We rejoice. We sense his love of approval. And our joy is full. So if there's a disconnection anywhere, if we're disconnected from any one of these things, it will eventually kill our joy. This abiding joy. This joy cannot be taken away. This is a joy that's full. This is a joy that's attained. This is a joy that's maintained. And we see all in all, friends, that this gift, this joy is a gift. It's a gracious gift of God. And every believer is called to walk in and pursue the joy of Jesus Christ. Access to the throne of grace in prayer. to to be in daily fellowship with him in a daily practice of rejoicing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the salvation he's provided for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. You know it. Rejoice how often? Always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. What's God's will for my life as a believer? Number one, rejoice always. Number two, pray without ceasing. Number three, in all things give thanks. Good, bad, or indifferent. Because this is the will of God for you who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I hope here that you'll go back later and see these connecting elements that will produce this joy because they come from the source of our joy, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, since this joy is a gift, any breakdown within the connecting elements will be cause for this, joylessness. Now, what I want to do is wrap up with some practical, applicable points here that answers this last question. What kills joy? What is a joy killer? Now, obviously, friends, that which comes into the life of the believer to rob him of this joy, any believer, is any type of gross sin. Any type of sin that will cause us 
to walk outside of the will of God, to remain unrepentant, that will kill joy. That's an easy one. Remember King David? After his terrible, terrible sin, his downward spiral of lustful affections for Bathsheba, which led him to adultery, deception, and murder, he writes a prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. He cries out to the Lord and notice the crescendo of his prayer. In Psalm 51 verse 12, he cries out to God, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. His joy was gone. He went upward of a, of a year without repenting, confessing the sin. Now, some practical understandings to that which kills our joy. Number one, the first and foremost thing that will kill joy is false salvation. False salvation. Because this is an attempt to seek joy without having the Holy Spirit. And no one is a child of God who does not have the Holy Spirit. Unless one is in the vine and Jesus Christ is the vine, you have no spiritual life. Jesus said in John 15, 5, for without me you can do what? Nothing. I used to climb trees as a kid. And I would climb up these trees and obviously you put all your weight on the heavy branches, but if you want to get up to you know, a pretty cool spot, you might have to step on a more delicate branch. And as you make your way up, you hear snap, crack, snap. And when you look, you, it's hard in the mix of all the foliage to to see which ones you broke. However, if you look out from your backyard in two weeks, you'll know which ones you broke because they're all dried and withered, aren't they? Because the branch now is hanging there, but it's no longer receiving life that comes from the trunk. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. And the only way to have life of that vine is to be truly in the vine. And from out of the branch will bear what? Fruit. So you must be in the vine. In other words, you must be saved. You might be in church. You may be heavily involved. You might be active, but spiritually dead. That's a joy killer. A definite joy killer. There's no joy because there's no capacity for true joy. Because Christ is not there. They don't possess the Holy Spirit. And any joy that's experienced is indefinable to them. It's circumstantial at best, but more often than not, it's simply absent from their lives. I personally believe that the vast majority of people who come and sit in churches today, especially throughout America, the majority of them are people who are not genuinely, genuinely saved. And I say that because of 15 years of biblical counsel and being part of a very large church the many people who came through the doors proclaiming to know Christ in their life are shambles, but when I'd ask them the simple gospel, they would not have a clue. Well, I accepted Jesus in my heart. That's not the gospel. They've never repented. They bear no fruit of having been born again. And if that's you this morning, friends, you must do this. You must repent. You must turn from your own ways. You must turn from yourself and turn to Christ, and you must ask him and beg him to save you. Turn to Christ by faith in all that he accomplished on that cross, which we define for you this morning. Second obvious killer of joy is this. 
prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. I mean, obviously, we see these things. If you're not in God's word and abiding in that truth, you'll be joyless. If you're not prayerful, you'll be joyless. Because see, if you're in Christ, you have life. He indwells you. And you will therefore desire his word. You will desire to obey his word. And as you desire to obey his word, what naturally comes out? It's like breathing. Prayer. So friends, as a believer, if you're here this morning, and you're saying, well, I know that I'm saved by God's grace, but you know, I have no hunger for his word. It's just not there. It used to be there. I used to actually hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's just not there. I used to be pure in heart, and now my thoughts are whack. This is what you must do. Friends, by the blood and the love of Jesus Christ, go to the foot of the cross. Ask him to restore in you a deep, heartfelt desire for his word. You've got to go to him. He's the source of this joy, so there's only one place to go. You go to him. Prayerlessness that will steal your joy. Because see, when you don't pray, when you face trials and temptations, you go seeking the wisdom of men rather than the wisdom of God. You go seek counsel from those who aren't affixed to the word of God, so you'll run everywhere into everyone but him. Rather than the throne of grace. You know, you heard this saying, where do you go in times of trouble? Do you go to the phone or to the throne? We must go to the throne. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He'll direct you. He will direct you. Another joy killer is praying amiss. Yet you may pray, but you may pray amiss. Those prayers always go unanswered, friends. James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask, but you don't receive. Because you ask amiss in order to spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What's he saying here? Notice he refers to these Recipients as adulterers and adulteresses. And the reason is this. Because as children of God, friends, sinners saved by grace, we're married to the Lord. He's our husband. Remember? He's the groom and we're the bride. Male or female in Christ, he's our husband. And what they do when they pray at miss is they ask from their husband for resources that will be used to commit adultery with the world system. That's praying amiss. Piper puts this as no one else can. He says this, quote, It is as though we would ask our husband for money to hire male prostitutes to provide the pleasure we don't find in him. Poetic, Piper-esque fashion. This is asking amiss to be worldly focused, as though Jesus were our genie. I remember this friend of mine, a number of years ago, their kids were growing up, and they would gather for prayer in the mornings, and every morning the kids would pray, Lord, help us to have fun today. Lord, help us to just have fun today. And the mother interrupted and said, stop it. We're training you in the truth of Scripture, and you're praying to have a fun day. In other words, their minds, their mother was realigning their thinking to Scripture. 
Now, when people grow up, if that's the level or the depth of their prayers, Lord, help us to have fun. Let us do this and love this and have fun here and have fun there. You pray amiss. Like an adulterer, an adulteress. Your prayers go unanswered. It kills joy. Next thing that kills joy is uncontrollable emotions. People who live in fear of the future. Anxiety grips them. Day by day, they're full of anxiety. Philippians tells us, chapter 4, verse 6, Beloved, be anxious for what? For nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God here, friends, the context of that peace, is the peace that we, as sinners who are saved by grace, now have with God. Your positional peace. Eternal peace. Because anyone outside of Christ is at war with God. And you, my friends, are no longer at war with God. That peace will guard your heart. The peace of the cross. Because he bore the wrath. So go to the Lord, friends. Don't chase after a worldly therapist. Don't go there. Don't go after worldly advice. And on top of that, don't listen to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. Our hearts are corrupt. If we listen to ourselves, we will be really out of whack. What you want to do is speak truth to yourself. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, put it like this, quote, I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Have you realized, he writes, that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? End quote. Now, we're all called to have a certain level of healthy self-analysis. Amen? We come and we examine ourselves under the shadow of the cross. However, excessive self-analysis, my friends, will rob you of joy and be the cause for even more self-centeredness. Over-self-examination will ruin you. Let's abide in his word and let's speak his word to our hearts rather than listening to our corrupt hearts. Because it will kill joy. Self-centeredness kills joy. Narcissism always kills joy. Because self-centered people are never satisfied. Self-centered people are never satisfied. They're always miserable. Another thing that kills joy is covetousness. Materialism, as I wrap up, that kills joy. You see, these folks, now we're talking about Christians here that are given to materialism, and it does become an idolatrous object or objects. But these folks experience very little joy because they're easily manipulated by the material world that surrounds them. Dangerous place to be. In other words, their emotion is controlled by the shallowness that this world system provides. The market's up, they're up. When it's down, they're down. These are oftentimes the Christians who say, you know what, I'll give more to the church when I make more. So they get the promotion, but because they're so focused on materialism, they never have enough, so they never give in proportion to what they've been given. So it's their materialism now that is the substitute for their joy. They're gripped. They have covetous hearts, and covetous hearts are never satisfied. Also, joy that's based on circumstances is a joy killer. 
if you have a bad circumstance or situation at home, I go home, my husband doesn't treat me the way I want to be treated, therefore I'm in Christ, but I have no joy because he's not treating me like the way he ought to treat me. My children don't obey like they ought to obey, so therefore my joy is shot. See, it's contingent upon everything that surrounds you and how well things are going. Another joy killer is ingratitude. This is a big one, ingratitude. The failure to be thankful destroys joy. And when you find a very thankful Christian, they very likely are prayer warriors. To have a thankful heart is to be prayerful continually. But some people are never thankful because they're simply never satisfied. They don't see life and the trials that God brings into our lives as a blessing from God, which is conforming us to the image of God through Jesus Christ. So an effective prayer life begins with a thankful heart. Here's another thing. Two more things, very quickly. The big one, friends, forgetfulness of the gospel. Forgetfulness of the gospel. Forgetting what we have been saved from will kill joy. John MacArthur, in a sermon, he said this, quote, Why is it that new Christians always seem full of joy, and you get to the people who've been saved for 40 years or so, and they begin, many of them, to look really sour? Why is that? He continues, I never knew a church split led by new Christians. Never. I've never heard of a major church problem created by new babes in Christ. I've never heard of conflict in a church between a group of brand new Christians. I've never heard of it. I've never heard of a group of miserable, griping, murmuring, complaining people in a church, all of whom were just saved. What a ridiculous thought. You've got to be a long-time Christian to be like that. Why? Because somehow we forget what we were saved from. You forget the glorious gospel. You forget the blood of Christ. You forget that many are called but few are chosen and he chose you. You forget that. And finally, this is another big one. An unwillingness to forgive kills joy. Because it leads to bitterness. It leads to resentment, which is connected to hate, which is connected to murder. And friends, also, a joy killer is an unwillingness to forgive yourself. I see this as a problem with many ladies. Something in their past they can't let go of. Something that they did, a deep, dark sin. Christ has come into their life. He's drawn them to himself. He's transformed them. They're covered with his blood, forgiven, finished, but they cannot forgive themselves for what they did back then. But he has. He died for that sin. And he's washed you and set you free. If you can't understand his forgiveness, then you can't under, if you don't under, understand that he's forgiven you, once and for all and forever, you won't for, forgive yourself and you will be joyless. It will kill your joy. Forget what's behind, friends. Focus on what's ahead. So all these connections, I pray that you'll go home and look at them once again and see all the promises that we have from our Lord Jesus Christ given to these men this night. They apply to us today.
because of what he's accomplished on our behalf. And I close with Hannah's prayer, the reading for which we opened up with this morning. I read the first two verses, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there's no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. He's the one that holds you, friends. He's the one that paid for you. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made what, friends? Full. Full. And I pray that your joy will be made full because of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. May we remember these things, my beloved. Let's pray. Holy, holy Father, I thank you for the promises given to these 11 men on this night, hours before your arrest and crucifixion, that apply to us 2,000 years later, that because we've been called by you, redeemed by the blood of our Savior, we abide in Jesus Christ. And as we abide in Christ, we are commanded to abide in your word. And that as we abide in your word and obey your word by faith, we also abide in your love. Your love of approval. Your love of pleasure for us in response to what you've accomplished on our behalf. And as we have access to you, Holy Father, through the finished work of your Son, for it is in his name in, your, in his name alone that we approach you. We, because we abide in that word and abide in that love, pray according to that word. And as we pray according to that word, you promise that whatever we ask according to that truth will be granted to us. Also that our joy will be made full. And I pray for your dear people here this morning that their joy would be made full, abundant and abounding, flowing out of them, Lord to reach others, to touch others, to encourage others, to bless others, to pray for others, to reach the lost with the gospel by the power of your spirit. May you be honored through us all. And we thank you for your truth. We thank you for sovereign grace. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.